soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. This last uh, Thursday was the, the 75th anniversary of D-Day, June 6, 1944, the day on which the Battle of, of Normandy began. And after months, really, really years of preparations, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Allied troops landed on the beaches of Normandy in northern France. And the start of the battle to liberate mainland Europe from Nazi occupation began. 160,000 infantry soldiers, another 200,000 naval personnel, more than 1,200 warships with 5,000 other naval vessels, 13,000 aircraft supported the D-Day invasion. And by the day's end, the Allied forces had gained a foothold in continental Europe. The cost in lives on on D-Day was high. More than 9,000 Allied soldiers were killed or wounded, but their sacrifice allowed more than 150,000 soldiers to begin the slow, arduous trek across Europe to defeat the Axis powers. D-Day marks the turning point in World War II when the Allied forces began to win our fight against the Axis powers. That voice that you, of course, heard was the voice of General, then, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, who later became our 34th president, and who, if you didn't know, was born in Denison, Texas. Now, go to the next, go to the next slide here. You've seen this, this last, this last week. So, so last week, in celebration of the 75th anniversary of D-Day, This 97-year-old paratrooper from the 101st Airborne. Now, our very own uh, James Harris was also 101st Airborne, but during the Vietnam era, not the World War II era. 
But this is Tom Rice. And Tom Rice, at 97 years of age, jumped from a C-37. And then he descended to the beaches of Normandy for a second time. Rice, he, he said that this was just like the first time, only this time he was met with cheers instead of bullets. He also said that last time he jumped by himself rather than jumping tandem. He also said that last time, rather than during the day, he jumped at, uh, at night. And last time, rather than being 97 years of age, he was 22. Uh, but other than that, it was exactly the same. <laughs> it's really cool stuff, right? Especially just kind of thinking about this last week and the 75th anniversary of, of D-Day. I start along those lines and with those sort of ideas because last week we began a, a series that we're calling Reaching Out. And, and it's a pursuit that we're going to engage in over the next several weeks. And in the words of, of Eisenhower, your task, your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But the tide is turned. And those who are free are marching to victory. Evangelism is about sharing what God has done in Jesus. I realize that that sounds very basic and very simple. And even though it takes being so very intentional. It is basic and it is simple. Evangelism is about reaching out and speaking a word, an intentional word to someone else for the cause of Christ and communicating to them the relevance of what God has done in Jesus. And as I said last week, Churches in general, churches simply don't naturally drift toward evangelism. They just don't. Churches drift toward themselves. And so do we have a burden for ministry? Do we have a burden for ministry and do we have a burden for mission? And really, those are two, they're two unique qualities. They're two different things. They, they work hand in hand. And, I, and I'm, I'm not saying that I'm willing to draw lines to differentiate between those two. A burden for ministry and a burden for, for mission. I think trying to draw a line between those two things can be counterproductive. But I've had conversations with folks who will say, I don't go to church, but I do kingdom work. I don't go to church, but I do good things for others. And doing good things for others is holy, and it's awesome, and it's needed, but is it really, is it really kingdom work? if we don't point others toward the king of the kingdom? Do we have a burden for evangelism? 2 Corinthians 11.29, the Apostle Paul asks two questions. He says, who is weak and I don't feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Romans chapter 10, verse 14, he asks three more questions. He says, how can they call upon the one that they've not believed in? How can they believe upon the one that they've not heard about? And how can they hear unless someone is preaching to them? And yet the thing is, we think that Paul is talking about someone coming into an auditorium and a preacher preaching at them. Because that fits maybe our idea or our, our concept of the idea of evangelism or even of preaching. But that's not what the Apostle Paul, that's not what God through the Spirit has in mind. 
The task is each of ours. The responsibility. I'm telling you, no one can be you but you. You are uniquely crafted and positioned in life to communicate Jesus to others in a way and to people that I will never communicate. You and I were to be ambassadors for Christ. Messengers announcing good news, announcing victory. But do we have a heart for the lost? Do we have a burden for the lost? And if we don't, why not? And you realize that, that that's the language that the Bible uses. A person is either lost or they are not. Right? That's the, that's the language that the Bible uses. The Bible uses the language of lost. You and I, we use the language of unchurched, a person who's, who's got no background in faith, they've got no history in, in church at all, they're unchurched. Or, or maybe this demographic of those who are de-churched. Are you familiar with that demographic? The de-churched, those are those who have, have had a background in faith, and yet for whatever reason have walked away. Maybe even with, with, with bad experiences in church, they've chosen to, to walk away from the community of faith. Jesus, yes. The church, no. Now, it doesn't work that way. But there are those who are unchurched. There are those who are de-churched. There are those who are seekers. We want to be a seeker-friendly congregation. There are those who are, are searchers. They're searching for more than what they, what they have in their life right now. There are those who are unsaved. And yet the Bible doesn't use that language. It's okay. We use that language and they're, they're valid terms. But the Bible doesn't use those terms. The Bible uses the word lost. And folks, there are lost folks out there. And my question to you within this series of lessons reaching out, my question to you is, have we lost a theology of the lost? Do we have a passion for the lost. Jesus came for the sole purpose of seeking and saving the lost. Again, think Savior and not life coach. Because our mission as followers of Jesus, our mission as followers of Jesus is not to be saved. How selfish would it be if that's all it was about. Knowing where salvation is found and not sharing that is criminal. It's negligent. Our mission, our mission is to be disciples who make disciples. To be about the mission of the Messiah, to seek and save the lost, to, to go into all the world and to make disciples. And what I want for you to hear from me this morning is in the context that you, that you find yourself, in the life in which you live, in the relationships that you share, no one can be you but you. And you're not starting at ground zero with anybody. Because God is already there. Even if they don't see it. Even if they've not realized it yet. Even if we can't see it. I want for you to begin with the truth that God is already there. None of us starts at ground zero with anyone. 
in sharing the good news of Christ. Our task is to help them to see and to accept that which is already true. Now, if you're tracking with me thus far, say amen. Okay, all right. Three passages I want to direct your attention toward. Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9, and Acts chapter 10. You may want to go ahead and and turn there. I just want to read a portion of, of each one of these texts. And maybe with each one of these, we we bring our own sort of of history or heritage or understanding to these three passages. Now, now understanding where these fall into the greater scope of Scripture, you have Jesus who has has lived a perfect life and who's died a sacrificial death on the cross. He's died for our sins. He's been resurrected by the power of God. He's been raised to life. He's ascended at God's right hand. He's at God's right hand interceding for us. You have the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 who shares this powerful message of the truth of the Gospel of Jesus. And from this point forward, you have have God's kingdom radiating throughout humanity. In the Gospel accounts, you have the life and ministry of Jesus. And in the book of Acts, you have the life and ministry of the early church. Acts chapter 8, you have Philip in the Ethiopian. Acts chapter 9, you have the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And then Acts 10, Cornelius the Gentile centurion. So look with me briefly at these three texts. I'm going to begin in in Acts chapter 8, verse 29. The Spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He asked. Unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And this is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as the lamb before his shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself? Or is he talking about someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told the good news about Jesus. He told the Gospel. He shared the Gospel of Jesus. And so you have this this Ethiopian eunuch. You have this Gentile, this non-Jew, who's obviously, he's, he's of a position of prominence. And yet he's also what's referred to as a proselyte. He is a a non-Jew who has gone to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. And even though he's not a Jew, he's an affluent Gentile. And he has within his possession this scroll, a scroll of Isaiah. And he's reading, he's searching, he's seeking, he's he's wanting to understand what it is that, that God is communicating through this text. He has this openness. There is an awareness within him. And Philip open to the Spirit of God, seeks out and is, is, is willing to listen to God's direction, to go and to, to communicate with this eunuch who, who invites him up into his chariot and who asks him, 
right where he's at, this is what I'm reading, this is what I understand, can you, can you tell me more about this? And the text says that beginning with that very passage of Scripture that Philip begins to share what? He shares the good news of Jesus. He shares the Gospel. He begins where he is. He begins where he is because God is already there. And if you continue reading the, if you continue reading the chapter, you'll see that as a part of sharing the message of the Gospel, that the Ethiopian says to Philip, hey, here's some water. And if you look at the text, and if you're intentional with the, the language of the text, you see that, that Philip and the Ethiopian, they go down into the water in order for the Ethiopian to be baptized. Now look at the next chapter, Acts chapter 9. You have the conversion of, of Saul, Saul of Tarsus, Saul who becomes Paul. Begin with me in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciple. Now, we, we were introduced to, to Saul earlier as he is there giving approval to the martyrdom, to the death of Stephen as Stephen is stoned. Saul is still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest. He asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So if, any, if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. He didn't eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Now this is Ananias who's involved in the conversion of, of Saul. This is not Ananias of Ananias and Sapphira, okay? Yes, Lord, he answered. Verse 11, the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. I've always thought to myself, how specific is that statement? Not only that it's specific language for, for Ananias, but it's specific language for us. I mean, just the, the description here. Go to the house Judas on Straight Street, and asked for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands upon him to restore his sight. Stick with me. Verse 13. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call upon your name we know who this guy is we know his history we we know what he's capable of we're fearful of what he's going to do the lord said to ananias go this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the gentiles and their kings and to the people of israel i will show him how much he must suffer for my name and Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands upon Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, He has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. 
that he could see again, he got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. If you continue reading there, you see how, how Saul, he, he meets some of the others. And then he goes on to, to Arabia for three years. Whenever I was in preaching school, we joked about how apparently the Center for Christian Education was, was in Arabia at, the time, at that time. Saul went away to preaching school. Um, and then he comes back. But Saul needed some time in order to go and to undo some of the things that he had experienced in his life. But what I want for you to see with Saul, who is blinded physically, long bef- spiritually, long before he is blinded spiritually, because of his religion, he could not see God. Because of his desire to protect God, he persecuted those who were followers of God. And yet God was at work. God's at work in a, in, a, in a radical, astounding way as the resurrected Jesus meets Saul there on this road to Damascus. But my reason for turning here is to point out God is already there. God's already there. What's required is for God's servants to assist Him on His journey. One more text, Acts chapter 10. Cornelius, this Gentile centurion. Let me begin in verse 30 of Acts 10. This is Cornelius speaking. Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send a joppa for Simon who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea. Again, specific language. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything that the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Cornelius is saying to Peter, I am open. God has opened my heart. He's opened my mind. I'm I'm listening. What do you have to say? Peter began to speak, verse 34, and I realize how true it is that God doesn't show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears Him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news, the gospel of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and how He went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with Him. We are witnesses. We are witnesses of everything He did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed Him by hanging Him on the cross. But God raised Him from the dead on the third day, caused Him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God has already chosen, by us, by we who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify, to bear witness that He is the One whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about Him, that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. Three conversion stories. Three conversion experiences. Three individual, individual lives. 
Philip and the Ethiopian, the conversion of Saul, and then Cornelius the centurion. One of the things that's important, one of the things that is important to point out is that within each and every one of these conversion experiences, we see baptism. That's the example that we see within these conversion experiences. But my point in all of this is this. In all three of these lives impacted, God is already there. God's already at work. God's already there. The task, therefore, of God's people, Philip, Ananias, Peter, within these three instances, the task of God's people is for God's people to foster an awareness and to present the truth of God. And the same, the very same is true of us. None of us starts at ground zero with anyone. God's already there. No matter matter where a person is at on their journey, God is already there. And the challenge, the challenge of the evangelist, which whether you realize it or not, that is what you are. If you are in Christ, you are called. We are called to share the good news of Christ. If we're in Christ to evangelize, that's our job. The challenge of the evangelist is to trust that God is present and at work. And then, to meet Him where He is. Within the lives of others. Even if they've yet to see. The word evangelical, I don't know if you've seen this or realized this or not, but it's been a bit hijacked in recent years. It's a godly biblical concept. To be evangelical. I think it's been hijacked from humanity. Just like, the, just like the first two humans were searching for a God who was a little less demanding. Because they wanted to be gods unto themselves. And how better to do that than to evoke the name of God? But we too often, we're like, we're like Israel in a sense. And that we are content to, maybe even as those who belong to Him, we're content to hear Him from a distance, from someone else. When the truth of the matter is, God wants for us to ascend the mountain and He wants for us to be with Him. And he wants for us to invite others to come and be with Him as well. Last week we focused a, a bit upon 2 Corinthians 5 and, and 6, and we're going to return there next week. One verse in the verse that I want to point us toward this week is chapter 6, verse 2 out of 2 Corinthians. In the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And as I said last week, those words are not for the lost, as we've oftentimes misconstrued. Those words are for us. Paul's writing to Christians, and he's communicating to Christians, telling Christians, now is the time of salvation. Communicate the relevance of Jesus to others. There's urgency. There's a sense of urgency. 
last uh, month, or I guess maybe yeah, it was back in, uh, in, in May when, when Jacob Thomason and I were at, at Pepperdine for, for lectureship last month. Uh, which, yes, I know, Malibu, I mean, it's a tough gig. Somebody has to go. Somebody has to do it. Well, thank you very much, Walter, one of you. Uh, one of the statistics that we heard while we were there was that there are two church movements that are growing right now in America. Two church movements. Non-denominational churches that are focused upon simplicity, not making it complex, not making it hard. Non-denominational churches that are focused upon simplicity and churches that are open to the Spirit. And as I heard that, I'm like, come to the East Ridge Church of Christ, right? I mean, think about it. You want non-denominational? We'll give you non-denominational. You want those who are open to the Spirit? We're not there yet. But we're seeking, we're striving. We, We want to be open to God at work. I have to admit, whenever I was at Pepperdine last month, Jacob and I were, were sitting around and we're talking with other ministers who are, during the week, they're kind of lamenting maybe where their churches are at right now. And there were a couple of times whenever we even communicated to each other and, and, and said, you know, I mean, we're not perfect, but we're not struggling like some are. We don't, we don't, have, it all, we don't have it all figured out, but hey... We're not doing that bad. Many church leaders right now, they're trying to figure out how do we connect to the millennial and iGen generation, right? How do we connect to millennials? How do we connect to the, to the iGens? Now, now, we can certainly do a better job of that, you don't, but you don't want to see me in skinny jeans, okay? But we can do a better job of that. But over 52% of this church, over 52% of Eastridge, is under the age of 42. Now, I, I say 42 because that's close to the dividing line between Gen X, uh, the, the generation with the greatest music. It's my generation. But I say 42 because that's pretty close to the dividing line between the Gen Xers and the millennial generation. 42. So 52% of this church is under the age of 42. And so what that means is that nearly 48% of Eastridge is over the age of 42. So really, as far as middle-aged, we're split as far as our generations pretty much right down, right down the middle. Now I want to also include this, 31% of Eastridge is 23 and younger. 31% of this church is 23 years of age or younger. Now, I say 23 because that's, that's generally the dividing line. That's generally the category for, for the iGens. Now, all in all, those, those are not bad statistics. You agree with me on that? I mean, I mean, all in all, those are pretty good statistics. We want to be... We want to be an intergenerational church. We are seeking to do intentional things to facilitate ways that we can be an, an intergenerational church. We want to be a, a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-generational church. Why? Because that's the kingdom of God. And in regard to our generational demographics, our numbers are not that bad. Not that we've arrived... Not that we can't improve, not that we've got it figured out. 
We're not doing that bad. But folks, if we are not reaching out, if we are not making disciples, if we are not disciples making disciples, we are just paying the bills. We are just doing the upkeep on this place, on these facilities, until someone else comes along in a few years and buys it from us for a steal. Now that may sound very direct. That may sound very harsh. But I really, I want a show of hands this morning. If you can think during your lifetime, can you think of a church that you at one time, maybe you were one time you were a part of it, or maybe at one time you, you just you heard of it, a church that was vibrant and healthy and growing, and God was at work, and God was revealed. Can you think of a church that you've known during your time alive, that at one time was on fire for the cause of the kingdom and was doing good things for God that has now closed its doors? Show of hands. Because I can name a dozen. Now that may sound harsh. And you may resist that notion. But reaching out is our call. Because it's how God has designed His church to function. And if ever we don't function in the way that God has designed us to function, what else can we expect? Now this is just a building. It's just a building. Church is not what we do. Church is who we are. Church is is who we are. It's it's not bricks and, and mortar. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors. Oh, come on. You know that song, right? Tell me I'm not the only one that knows that song. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors. Okay, all right. Very good. All right, you're tracking with me. The good news is good news. Good news is good news. It is not good advice. It's good news. And and maybe this is an opportune time to say this. The gospel is not hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, live faithful. That is not the gospel of Jesus. That is how we respond to the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is God has redeemed the world in Jesus. God has saved the world in Jesus. And I said last week, the earliest critique of Christianity was that it was too inclusive. And the question that I'm asking is, how do we get that back? All of that to say this. I want for you to hear two things. First thing I want you to hear is God's already there. God's already there. Someone else's life who's not a follower of the way Trust that God is already there so that you can seek an inroads and an ability to be able to minister to them and to speak truth into their life. And the second thing that I want to conclude with, and we're going to follow up on this next week, but I want to say it this week. Please do not allow what you don't know to keep you from sharing Jesus. Please don't allow maybe 
feelings of, well, I just don't, I don't know it all. If we waited until we knew it all, we'd never do it. And if we ever did, thinking we knew it all, we're the last one that needs to do it to begin with. I'm not saying that I want you to go and hold a tent revival tomorrow. Now, some of you are saying, tent revival, what's that? Come back next week, we're going to talk about those. But in weeks to come, we're going to talk about some practical actionable ways to share the gospel of Jesus with others. But I'm telling you, God's already there. I'm not asking you to go to, to, go to Ghana, Africa. Although several from this congregation recently with the Dallas Christian community did just that. What I'm asking this morning is, who is your one? Who's your one? Who is one person Who is one person that has come to mind? Who's one person that you know doesn't know Jesus? Who's one person that you know that maybe used to know but no longer knows Jesus? Who's one, who is your one? Just one person. This, this series of six lessons, this is a series on evangelism. This is not a series necessarily to invite anyone to. This is a series for us. I want to be able to say and to communicate some things that I can only say and communicate to us. This is about reaching out. Later on in the summer, I want to present three messages centered upon conversion, centered upon following Christ, centered upon baptism. One of those three would be an opportune time to invite your one. But this morning, I'm just asking you, who's one person? The Bible uses the language of lost. Lost. It's another metaphor the Bible uses. The Bible uses the language of death. Spiritual life. Spiritual death. So let me bring things to a, a close by, by asking, to be, to be honest, it's, it's, it's asking a very hard question. It's a very hard question, but I want to ask it. If you had the ability... To raise one person from the dead that you've lost, who would it be? If you had the ability to speak resurrection, if you could resurrect someone who's passed from this life to the next, who would it be? Now we know. We know that those who have gone on to eternity, they have journeyed to that which is far, far better than this. And only a fool would bring them back. But there are those that we mourn. There are those that we grieve. There are those that we ache for. So maybe someone comes to mind. This is what I want for you to know today. You have the capacity to resurrect someone. You have the ability to raise someone from the dead. Or rather, better put, the Gospel of Jesus has the capacity to resurrect and raise someone to life. We simply have to speak life. We simply have to speak resurrection. To speak life and to breathe life and to share life. The life that's found it's only found in the good news of Christ. To preach and to teach 
and to herald good news. Victory. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. But he is defeated. The tide is turned. And those who are free are marching to victory. I ask you to please think about the things that we're looking at during this series to be present over the next four weeks as we're considering and taking serious this charge, this challenge of reaching out, this call that we have to be disciples that make disciples. This morning we want to offer a time of invitation. And if you're inclined to respond to the gospel in some way, the gospel of Jesus calls for us to submit our lives to God through Christ in every way. And one of those ways is to be baptized into Christ. If you've not done so, I ask you to come as we stand and as Tony leads us.